you want to turn there in your Bibles. I grew up in the church, but I did not grow up reading my Bible. I was familiar with all of the Sunday school stories, but Judges was one of the first books that captivated me when I read the Bible on my own after I became a Christian. And I think the reason is because when I was a teenager, I loved comic books. And there's about nothing that ranks as high on the comic book factor in all of the Bible as the book of Judges. We have, you know, Samson with his superhuman strength. Uh, and we have, as we'll see tonight, uh, Ehud the assassin taking down an abundantly fat king named Eglon. Uh, the stories here um, are, are fascinating, but they're also tremendously graphic. Not only do we encounter assassins and, um, you know, uh, the death of hundreds and hundreds of Philistines at the hand of Samson, but it's in the book of Judges that Jephthah sacrifices his daughter uh, to keep a vow. It's in the book of Judges that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah replays, but this time in the context of Israel. It's in the book of Judges where a man, after his concubine is raped to death, gang raped to death, cuts her into 12 pieces and puts her in the mail to get all of Israel's attention. It's kind of extreme. The place where we can go wrong in reading the book of Judges is to assume that just because it's full of superhero-like stories that it's a book about a bunch of heroes. That the people found in these pages, even though they're used by God, are those that we should seek to emulate. But actually, as we'll see, the message of Judges is just the opposite. Anyways, it should be a wild ride. Um, but let's go ahead and just pick up here in verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. Okay. Now, notice here, we're following a pattern, okay? And so Joshua begins after the death of Moses. And now we get after the death of Joshua. One of the significant things we find in this opening verse is the fact that both God's story continues after God's servants pass on, and also, once the servants are done and dead, there's still more work to be done. We just finished the book of Joshua together, and it was a book of great and tremendous victory. One of the more positive accounts of Israel's history, not without its flaws, not without its uh, demerits, if you will, but overall, the general gist of the book is that Joshua faithfully led Israel in victory and obedience of God. But now, in the opening days of the book of Judges, Joshua is dead. So after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? We saw at the end of the book of Joshua that there was still more work to be done, that the uh, back of the enemies in the land had been broken through a major campaign under the leadership of Joshua, that the land had been divided between the 12 tribes, and now all of the tribes are to continue 
the work begun in Joshua in their own land. And so here, all of Israel gathers together, and it's worth noticing that all of Israel gathers together to inquire of the Lord. That will not be consistent with the book. They begin on the tales of Joshua's leadership, doing the right thing, and here God speaks to them in their inquiring, probably making use of the high priest in the Urim and the Thummim, as we see in other places. In verse 2, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into your territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. So notice here, the second thing we see in this brief little introduction is cooperation. We see Judah turning to Simeon, the tribe that has the closest territory to them. In fact, Simeon's uh, inheritance is in the midst of Judah and saying, come with us and fight our battles with us. But as we'll see in the book, that's completely absent. We won't find uh, unity throughout the book of Judges, but disunity. Um, But here on the tale of Joshua, we find unity. Verse 4, then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai is just a title. Adonai Bezek would be the lord of Bezek. So they find this ruler in Bezek and they rout him. Verse 6, Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Six verses in. And we get that gratuitous violence that I was talking about. But notice, for context, the next verse. Verse 7, And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Okay? That's directly out of the mouth of this king. Now, what's the concept behind thumbs and toes here? This is big thumb and big toe, and basically it stops you from doing a couple of things. No more holding a sword. No more stringing a bow or, or firing an arrow. No more running in battle, because without your big toes, you basically don't have the balance to stay up. Um, But notice here that he had a heritage, he had a history of cruelty to other kings, and so even he interprets this as being a just consequence. Now, we're not going to get into all all of this idea behind Israel's holy war, but this is a good reminder for us that effectively God had promised the land to Israel And so he's giving them the land, but he also calls them to wipe out the Canaanites solely and entirely due to the Canaanites' generations upon generations of wickedness and cruelty to others. Israel becomes an instrument of God's judgment. In the same way, later in Israel's history, when they begin to behave like Canaanites, worship the same gods that the Canaanites worship, practice the same practices which God says in Deuteronomy that he abhors, Uh, God brings in a new instrument of judgment, this time the people of Babylon, and he brings them in and responds. And so the warfare attribute of the book of Joshua that we find playing out in the book of Judges, um, God is bringing about consequence. He's bringing about 
judgment. He happens to use Israel to do it, but as we'll see in a second, there's, there's other factors going on, and as I've said before, God is the only one in the universe who can truly multitask, okay? You think you can, but you cannot. You can do two things in rapid succession, but God is so uh, all-knowing and all-powerful, he's working at so many different levels, but we need to keep in mind here uh, as we see with Adonai Bezek, God bringing justice on tyrants. That's what's happening through Israel's hand, okay? And so they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Verse 8, the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterwards, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negeb, in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was former, formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Shishai and Iman and Talmai. From there they went again into the inhabitants, uh, against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's daughter, or younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him and asked her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? And she said, give me a blessing. Since you've set me in the land of the Negev, please also give me springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now we have that story word for word recorded for us in the book of Joshua. The reason why it's repeated for us here in the book of Judges is because Othniel is going to be one of these so-called judges, okay? And so chapter one, operating as an introduction for the book, begins with a very positive thing. We see not only Othniel, but also Caleb and Caleb's daughter, Aksa, all operating as icons of faith, people who really believe in the promises of God and are out to pursue them. We, we've commented on this further in Joshua, so we're going to move on. But notice this, verse 16, the descendants of the Kenite Moses, uh, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. Now, we've encountered the Kenites before, because we know that Caleb was a Kenite. And now we finally start to get his background, that it has to do with this intermingling of uh, Moses' uh, wife's family, some of whom, all the way back in the book of Exodus, Moses invited, come, God's going to take us to a land uh, and give us this land, you should come. Some of them said no, some of them said yes, and they get inherited into the people of Judah, okay? Verse 17, Judah went with Simeon his brother and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zapheth and devoted it to destruction, so the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory and the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. But, okay, now we get to one of the repeated refrains of this introduction in the book of Judges, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Now notice that's just given with no interpretation there. If that's the only sentence you've read in the Bible, then the assumption there is, well, they were outmatched. They had chariots of iron, and so they decided not 
to fight. But we already know from the book of Joshua, and we'll encounter again tonight, uh, that iron chariots are no problem for God. It becomes a problem of faith. God can do these things, but not these things. God's given us enough strength to defeat these enemies, but not these enemies. And so here a pattern begins that we'll see over and over again, especially in chapter 2, that they had victory, but not total victory. That they fought against their enemies, but left some present, despite the constant warnings of Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. Okay. Verse 20, Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who live in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Okay, And so they didn't drive them out, and so now they're neighbors. Verse 22, the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them, and the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz, and the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us a way into the city, and we'll deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Huttites and built a city that today, uh, that, and called its name Luz, that is its name to this day. Now actually, that story sounds somewhat familiar. They spy it out. They find someone on the inside. They strike a deal and spare their life, and that gives them victory over the city. It sounds a lot like the story of Jericho. But here, it's a parody of the story of Jericho, because you may remember what happens in Jericho is Rahab hides the spies under her own initiative and says, I know your God is the one true God. She converts, if you will. We don't see that here. This is just an offer. We'll spare your family. And what happens? He settles and he builds a new town. That town is in the land of Israel. And so they spare once again and leave in the land. They're now neighbors in Luz, the Huttites. Okay, verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, nor the inhabitants of Nahal, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subjects to force, subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, the inhabitants of Sidon, or Aleb, or Axib, or Hebla, or Aphek, or Rahab, so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. You're seeing not only the pattern here, but how we've shifted gears from Joshua. Joshua is primarily victory. There's only a handful of references 
to failure in the book of Joshua. But here it becomes kind of the, the malu, the milu of the entire book. It's, it's the factor in every tribe. And just over and over here, we're no longer told by the end of chapter 1 about the victories of Israel like we saw in the beginning, but just their failures. Verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come into the plain. Okay. We'll read more about that in a second, but notice he saves Dan for last because they lose the land they had and get pushed out of their territory entirely. Finally, verse 35, the Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor, and the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. So this is what happens in the days following Joshua. We don't get any commentary on it until chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bosham, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Okay, and so we see this messenger uh, the word for angel is just the word for messenger. Um, but nonetheless, this is probably not a prophet, but the same angel of the Lord we find throughout the book of Judges. And so we'll save exposition on who this is until later, but this is the same one that we find in the story of Gideon. It's the same one that we find in the story of Samson, specifically with his parents. But here, the message is given is God has been faithful brought them out of the land of Egypt, promised them victory. Uh, you know, he says, I will never break my covenant with you. And you, in response to that, will make no covenant with the inhabitants, but you have not done what I asked you to do. Verse 3, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, People lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bosham, which means weeping, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And so here we see uh, that God speaks to the people and calls them out for their failure. That is the context for the book of Judges. In fact, the enemies that occur most of the time in the book of Judges are not the Canaanites. I don't know if you are aware of that, but the Philistines, for example, are not one of the tribes. You remember the names of all the tribes from Joshua? The Gergesites and the Hittites. All of the Canaanites together, the Philistines aren't on the list. In fact, the Philistines are late occupants to the land of Israel. Um, the Bible tells us that they came in from Crete and they pushed into the land. Actually, their target, we know from history, was Egypt. They wanted to settle in Egypt, and Egypt drove them back into what we know as Israel. Okay. The Philistines will be a primary enemy for Israel, um, but for the most part, we no longer find Israel warring against the Canaanites, the occupants of the land. They just live there now, together. Okay. That's the context. Verse 6. We look a little bit back in time, right? Joshua's already dead, but we go back in time. Verse 6, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, 
and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Okay, that just picks up the conclusion of the book of Joshua that we read in the last chapter there in verse 8. Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of inheritance at Timnath Harries in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, all the ones who were under Joshua's leadership, right? And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel, okay? Now, we need to be really clear on what that means. It doesn't mean that they don't know who God is. It's that they don't know him personally. It doesn't say that they didn't know about the Lord. They just don't know him, and they haven't experienced his victory, okay? In other words, the generation after Joshua that outlives him, they have all of these failures that comes, that chapter comes to an end, and then a new generation is born that has not seen the Lord's hand, that does not know the Lord. Now, probably these young children, this new generation, worship Jehovah, but they worship him in this mixed context of the land, and as we'll see, they worship him and other gods. Okay. So, verse 11. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, now what we're reading about here actually sets the tone for the rest of the book. It presents a cycle in four stages, okay? And so the first stage is that they served the Baals. Now notice Baals is plural there. That's because we're talking about the family of gods, Baal and Ashtoreth and Chemoth. They are like the Kardashians of, of the gods of the area. Um, they're fertility gods, and most of their worship was sexual in nature because by behaving in sexual behavior in a um, religious setting, you could provoke the gods to sexual behavior, and that's what led to fertility of the land fertility of your, your wives and your li livestock, etc. okay? And so that was the, the existing religion in Canaan, and they inherit this from their neighbors just as Moses warned them would happen. And so this, that's the first stage. First, they begin to worship other gods. They abandon the Lord, and they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord to serve the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. That's phase two, okay? So they turn from God and worship these false gods. So God gives them over to these enemies who here are called the plunderers. We'll learn more about them in just a minute. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Okay? And so God brings consequences on them because of them worshiping the other gods, gives them over to their enemies. And so what we're going to find is conquerors coming into the land of Israel, taking over, taking tribute, putting them into subservience, then, verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods 
and bowed down to them. And so what happens next, we've got a step missing here that we'll see in just a minute, which is that Israel begins to cry out. Okay, we'll see that pattern repeated over and over again in the book of Judges. And God responds to them crying out by sending a judge. Now, what is a judge? Okay, in English, this word is unfortunately very misleading. Because the word uh, that's used consistently of the 12 judges we're going to meet is usually translated savior or deliverer. And that really gets at the heart of what these people are that God raises up. They're deliverers, okay? They're heroes who stand up against the enemies that have conquered Israel and deliver them from their power, okay? Now, we will find some of the judges judging different word, translated the same way, super confusing in a book that bears the title Judges. Um, But even that is not like holding court. It's more like counsel, even legal counsel, but, um, but we shouldn't be thinking of the court system of Israel here, um, but leadership in the sense of counsel and deliverance, okay? Yet, verse 17, they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. And so notice here, we're not just going to go through this cycle once, because it doesn't end there. They're delivered, they're, uh, they're back from their enemies, they're restored, but then they turn again to worship other gods. Okay? Look at this in verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all their days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So notice here, it's not national repentance that brings about a savior. We're going to see them cry out to the Lord on multiple occasions, and we can read that as being repentance language. But if you study the word itself, and it's always the same one throughout the book of Judges, there are occasions where that crying out is coupled with repentance, but it's always made explicit. They cried out and confessed their sins. They cried out and tore their clothes and repented of their actions, those types of things. Um, but we, what we see here is God responding to their pain, to their difficulty, even though it's deserved and brought on them by God. Okay, So verse 19, whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. That's the second thing we need to know. Okay, So here we've got the cycle begins with Israel worshiping other gods. God gives them over to their enemies. They cry out to God. God sends a deliverer. And then the cycle starts over, but it doesn't start over in the same place. It starts over not so much as a cycle, but as a spiral, and it's moving downward. Okay, and so we're going to see here, as it says here, that every generation is more corrupt than their father's generation. In other words, the book of Judges is like a car crash with the e-brake on. It slows down the wreck, but it does not stop it. And when we get to the end of the book, Israel will be fully accommodating the Canaanites to the point where they'll be indistinguishable. Okay, that's when we get to the concubine and the gang rape and the almost civil war of Israel. Okay. And so it gets worse and worse through the book of Judges. In fact, you can see this in the judges themselves. 
We're going to start with Othniel tonight. What do we know about Othniel? A man of faith, from a family of faith, who stands up, believes in God's promises, does the right thing. What do we get with the last judge? Samson, a bunch of spirit-empowered college pranks because of his own selfishness and self-interest. A Nazarite vow that he can barely keep, right? He's a total mess. Even the judges are part of this downward spiral, okay, that we're going to read about in the book of Israel. If you're wondering, well, then why write the book at all? What is the point of the book? It won't be until the last couple of chapters that we finally get the theme of the book. There's a repeated refrain. Four times in the last two chapters it says, for there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Technically, it says that whole thing twice, and it says, for there was no king in Israel uh, four times, okay? Just twice with the added second sentence. But that's clearly the point that the author is trying to make, is that here there's no unity in Israel. There's no leadership, and any leadership that happens is generational in nature, and we'll also see that it's regional in nature. Samson wasn't the deliverer of Israel. He was the deliverer of a small portion of Israel. In fact, many of the judges that we'll look at uh, live contemporary to one another. But we never see any of the judges gathering the full mass of Israel's army or going beyond their particular local problems. Okay. So, verse 19 again, But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people. Notice that language there. The usual phrase is my people. In fact, that word there for people, it's goy, okay, where we get goyim as in the nations, as in Gentiles. It's a very neutral term. It's not Israel. It's not my elect. It's not my children. It's not even my people. It's because this nation, it's a very distant word, has transgressed my covenant that I have commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. And then we get part two, okay? Why are they there? Why are the nations there? In order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. Okay, so this continuous temptation to worship the Baals becomes a test for every generation. Now, let's be really clear here. God doesn't need the test. There's a, an occasion in the book of uh, John, in John chapter 2, when Jesus attends a festival in Jerusalem, and many people are believing in him because of the signs that he did, but it says this, that Jesus did not entrust himself to any of them because he knew what was in them. And he didn't need anyone to testify what was in the hearts of men. And you see that in Jesus' life, right? Doesn't he speak beyond observation? I mean, there's Sherlock Holmes who can tell you about your history looking at your face, but Jesus knows the innermost thoughts. Sometimes people sitting in the audience to themselves privately scoff at Jesus and he turns and responds to their scoffing, right? He knows the depths of the hearts of men. This is why Jeremiah prays, Search me and know my heart, O God. Uh, this is the psalmist, actually. See if there's any wrong way in me. The psalmist prays that way. Jeremiah says, 
The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it except for God? Okay, and so God is testing Israel here, not so he can see who they really are, but so they can see who they really are. You see, it's in the book of Judges that any any thought that with slightly different circumstances or with a more longer standing pattern or uh, just because this generation went awry, we can do better, nothing kills the optimism of human nature like the book of Judges. It's 400 years of repeated and constant failure. You see, one of the things the Old Testament does very well is shows the need for a Savior. Just think, if if all you had was the book of Exodus, God miraculously delivers a people, he gives them a law, he says, keep the covenant. What would you think? You think, okay, this is what it looks like to have eternal life. This is what it looks like to obey God. This is how we get all of the blessings. But then we watch as one nation for almost 1,800 years tries to do just that and fails and fails and fails and fails. That's why when Jesus comes on the scene, he can say with confidence, I did not come to condemn the world for the world is already condemned. Instead, I came to save it. The time of the judges was to test Israel to show them what was in their own hearts, that they might turn to the Lord. But the book of Judges is to show us our own hearts so that we recognize our need for a Savior. Side note, another thing we learn is that all of these Saviors don't cut it. Not a single one of them can make Israel a holy nation. Not a single one of them can bring them back entirely to the Lord. And every great revival we find in the Bible is a generation deep at best. But what God promises to do in Jesus Christ is to make dry bones live. To take a dead nation and make them alive. To take out our heart of stony flesh and place in it his own heart. To give us his own divine nature in the Holy Spirit so that we would walk and be obedient. That's the new covenant that the old covenant points to. Here Israel didn't keep the covenant. But God says in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to bring about a new covenant. And you will be my people and I will be my God. It's enablement. It's giving us the ability to truly follow. And it's a gift we receive because we have a true Savior. So, in order to test Israel, verse 23, So the Lord left the nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Chapter 3. Now, this is the important part. This tells us who the enemies of Israel are for the rest of the book of Judges. But notice, once again, who they're not. These are not people we've encountered before who are occupants of the land. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. Now, that gives us another edge in. They're there to test but they're also there so that they might know war. Now, don't miss that for what it is. War in Israel is not 
um, is not a land grab, it's not conquering, it's in fact about the most anti-militaristic warfare we've ever found, where there's all sorts of limits in place. You can't take this land or that land or that land, just the land that I am giving you. You're not to go as conquerors, but as an instrument of God's judgment. It's not because you're better than other people. You can't keep a standing army. Your weaponry, you can't have chariots. You can't modernize your armies. The whole thing was dependent upon God. The reason why the generations need to know war is because it's through these wars that God shows himself faithful, proves his presence. Okay. Verse 3, these are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal, Hermon, as far as Labohamoth. They were to, for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, there's the list, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Okay. And so there's the enemies like the Philistines, and then there's the neighbors, which are the Canaanites, and that's the context, is that they lived among them, and then verse 6 Despite the clear command of the book of Deuteronomy, their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. So finishes the introduction to the book, but it's kind of set what we're just going to observe for the next few weeks. Now what happens next is uh, during this period of time, our author selects 12 different judges. Now interestingly enough, each one of those 12 is aligned with a different tribe of Israel. Okay. There were probably other deliverers than these. In fact, some of them we only get two verses to. But we do know their lineage. It's very intentional. He wants to show that this is a whole Israel problem and that God was faithful to all of Israel. And so he tw selects 12 judges and you go, ah, but aren't there... 13 tribes of Israel. Indeed, there are. Remember, there are the half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, which together would make the tribe of Joseph. And so the tribe that's missing, no deliverer comes from the Levites. But unfortunately, we do find a Levite in the last chapters, and he gets the worst story of all. Okay? And so part of the structure of the book here is not just to move forward in time, generation by generation, but to move around the nation and explore how all the tribes are doing during this period of time. Um, on top of that, like I said, the judges are arranged uh, so that we have the best and the least questionable up front. It doesn't take long for things to get weird, but they definitely get weirder as we go along. Okay? And I don't just mean because... Gideon, who's right in the middle, is a coward. I mean Gideon, uh, who sets up idolatrous worship in his old age for Israel. I mean that Gideon, okay? Things, things get weird, but it begins, once again, with Othniel. Now, as we look at Othniel here, I want you to notice that we're basically going to get most of the facets of that pattern we just talked about. In fact, we know very little about Othniel and his victory here. Uh, the next one, Ehud, will take up the rest of the chapter. Deborah and Barak will take up two chapters. Gideon will take up three chapters. Samson will take up three chapters. But here, Othniel is just a couple of verses. We might want to know how the battle goes down. The author doesn't tell us. We might want to know more about 
Othniel's history, but he's here primarily as a paradigm to just give us a glimpse into the pattern we're going to observe. And so we read in verse 7, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into hands of Cushan Rishtham, king of Mesopotamia. Is Mesopotamia in the land? No. It's way far east, okay? Like uh, Tigris and Euphrates east, okay? Uh, and so this is actually really striking. God is working so sovereignly that, that he gives this king victory all the way to the land of Israel. Sends him out of his kingdom, drives him into the land of Israel to teach him the lesson. Verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer of the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Remember, Othniel is the one who responded to Caleb's call. He believed that the Lord was doing it, uh, was going to do it, and he was victorious over this city. He was given Caleb's daughter. And then notice another part of the pattern here, verse 10. The spirit of the Lord was upon him. And he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. That's another part of the pattern. Who are these judges? Where do they come from? Only two things are repeated over and over again. They're chosen by the Lord, and the Spirit of the Lord was upon them. Okay? And so they're charismatic leaders, but not in the sense that we mean the phrase now. We shouldn't think that Othniel has a bright white smile or an impressive ability to speak before people. In fact, Gideon's a total coward. What I mean by charismatic is going back to this original idea of charisma as in spirit-led, anointed. That's the Greek word for spirit, for gift. They are gifted by God for this role. The spirit comes upon them. Now, Samson becomes a good illustration of this. Sometimes when we think about Samson, we think of somebody who is big and bulky and visibly strong. That's never mentioned in the story, which is interesting because when somebody is significantly strong like Samson, it usually tells us about his muscles. It usually tells us how big he was or significant. We don't get any of that with Samson. We just see the spirit of the Lord coming upon him and then him doing miraculously strong things. Okay? And so the leadership that we see in the, in the book of Israel is God's choosing God's empowerment for the sake of God's people. And one of the things that I love about the book of Judges is that we have a tendency to think that we need an entire army of faithful people to the Lord to accomplish his work. And over and over again in the days of the Judges, God just chooses one person. And even when they do poorly, they do well. Now, none of them, I think, really succeeds. None of them fulfill the role as being a savior, but uh, there is still some heroics here. There is still some examples here. Now, who is this king? Cushan Rishthiam. Now, Rishthiam means of double wickedness. So it's probably not his real name. In fact, uh, notice what it says. Let's see if we can see this right here. Well, I can't show you because it's not, it's not in Hebrew here. But that word for Mesopotamia is surprisingly close in the Hebrew to Rithium. 
And so they're probably razzing on him here by calling him double wicked, okay? Because what Mesopotamia means is the city of two river, rivers, double rivers, okay? And so here, uh, this may not be his name at all, just the title that Israel gave him. We will discover that Judges is full of mocking the enemies of Israel. Just wait uh, a minute and we will see that extensively. But nonetheless, he goes out with the Spirit of the Lord upon him and he delivers the people from this Mesopotamian king. So, verse 11, last part of the pattern here, the land had rest 40 years, then Othniel the son of Kenaz died. Okay, so he delivered them, and then for the duration of his life, Israel was safe. Now, we've already seen Othniel is from Judah. Now we move on to Benjamin. Okay, and that brings us to Ehud. Now, one challenge in the story of Ehud is that the villain of this story's name is Eglon, and it's easy to get them confused. I'll help you very quickly, okay? Eglon as in shaped like an egg, okay? As we'll see, that's a fitting description. His name actually means calf-like, okay? And he's a big bull of a man. But, verse 12, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Moab, once again, are not the residents of the land. Where does Moab come from? Moab is from the lineage of Lot, Abraham's nephew. Okay? And so after the aftermath of Sodom and Gomorrah, which I do not want to review, leads him to having a couple of sons. One of them is Moab. It's this lineage. Okay? But notice where this king, King Eglog, gets his power. God strengthens him against his own people because they're doing evil in his sight. Okay? Verse 13, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. Now, most likely, the city of Palms is Jericho, okay? So if you remember, that's right in the heart of Israel, and it's also right on the edge of Benjamin's territory, okay? So he comes, and he makes this most likely his summer palace. He lives in Moab, but he now vacations in the city of Palms, and I assume the name gives you the reason why. It's a nice tropical place. It's relatively near the Dead Sea, but it's also near, um, near En Gedi, which is this lustrous, uh, you know, desert springs type location, um, about 30 minutes, 45 minutes drive from Jerusalem. Okay, so verse 14, the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. Okay, now what does it mean that they served him? As we'll see here, one of the things it means is that they paid tribute, okay? So anything that they harvested now is heavily taxed and pushed off to this pagan king, okay? Then, verse 15, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Okay, we're told a couple of things about, here, uh, about Ehud here. Once again, the Lord raises him up. He's handpicked by God. His name is Ehud, he's the son of Gera, and then it says that he's a Benjamite, but I want you to notice it doesn't say a Benjamite, it says the Benjamite, okay? That's not common. It's tremendously uncommon. Here's probably why. Because Benjamin's name means the son of my right hand, okay? And so he's the definitive son of my right hand who happens to be left-handed, okay? Now, when it says that he's a left-handed man here, that actually sounds like an obscure detail, 
right? We don't generally go into a job interview and introduce yourself and say, oh, by the way, I'm left-handed, right? You might if you're buying a pair of scissors. But why does it bring it up here? As we'll see, that's a significant plot point, but here's something you need to understand. Most likely, Ehud was not left-handed in the way that three of my children are, okay? The word that's used here in the Hebrew means his right hand was bound. In fact, later in 1 Chronicles 12, we find other Benjamites, Benjamites who were right-handed and left-handed. They were ambidextrous. They could shoot a bow with their right or left hand. It uses a different word for left-handed there. Okay. Still Benjamites. And then one other place that we need to refer to get this, this is later in the book of Judges. So he's not the only left-handed Benjamite we find in the book of Judges. Look at Judges chapter 20. I mentioned to you that the book of Judges closes with a civil war between the tribes of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. And so as we're counting the armies on the front line, it's talking here about the armies of Benjamin. It says in verse 16, among these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, same word, uh, everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Okay? So what's emphasized in both of the other places where we find left-handed Benjamites is their skill in war. Okay? How they handle a bow, how they handle a sword, how they handle a sling. Okay? Now, to be clear here, okay, let me clear up one thing really quick. When we read about a sling, don't think a slingshot. Okay? A sling is a leather pouch between two long strings about four feet long, you set a rock in it and you swing it one-handed and you release one of the strings and that's how you let it go, okay? So, here's the thing. When it says that he was bound in the right hand, the idea probably is here that they intentionally trained themselves to be left-handed to give them uh, opportunity over their enemies, okay? So, for example, if your opponent is right-handed and he's holding a shield and you're left-handed, he's at a severe disadvantage, now, how many people are you going to fight who are right-handed? Almost all of them, okay? So the idea here is probably that he is intentionally trained in warfare. In fact, that seems like a Benjamite tradition. They're the ninjas of Israel, okay? They're devoted to always having a standing army of specially trained combatants, okay? He's one of those. Now, is it possible that it actually means there's something wrong with his right hand? Maybe. And if that was all we had was Ehud's story, that preaches better. That's the story I'd tell, that God uses a disabled person to bring about victory, which he does in other places, side note. Um, but most likely here, it's talking about the fact that he's trained to use his left hand. Now, going back to the story. So, notice here, the people of Israel sent tribute to Eglon... Uh, by him, Ehud. So Ehud carries the tribute to the king of Moab. He's part of the delivery system of these taxes. And verse 16, Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. Okay, now this is going to be awkward from the stage, but here's what it's saying. It's saying about uh, 15 inches, he's got a sword, and he binds it right here. Now if you're right-handed, that doesn't work. That's why when you see somebody grab a sword, they grab a cross to their left side, but he's left-handed. So he puts it on his right side, OK? 
Okay. Now, the reason that why that's probably significant is because he's about to carry a sword into the presence of a foreign king. Okay. There's no metal detectors in that day, but human beings have understood the system behind a pat-down for a long, long time. Okay. But why would they pat down his left leg? Or, sorry, his right leg. Okay. And so he is set up here for stealth. In fact, the length of the sword is unique. It's relatively short, so it can be concealed. On top of that, it tells us here it's a double-edged sword, which uh, probably makes you think of like a, a claymore or a broadsword or something like this. This is obviously smaller. But most ancient weapons were only sharpened on one side. They were, were for hacking. Why would you double-edge a sword? For poking. Okay, that's going to become important as well. The author is laying out all the details we need to know because they're part of the plan. Okay? It's like that scene uh, you know, in Mission Impossible type movies where they roll out the map and they talk through the plan. He's letting us in on all of these secrets. But effectively, he goes uh, and he's made this sword with two edges, a cubit in length. He bounds it on his right thigh under his clothes and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. That's a surprisingly rare description in the Bible, actually. But it wants us to know this. And one of the things that I love about Hebrew storytelling is that they tell us what we need to know before we know we need it. So it just drops us in here. Now that you've met Eglon, we don't get, like in American literature, a full description. right? Maybe you can picture him now. But we, we only get the pertinent details, but we get them up front, just like we're in the room with Ehud. But notice, uh, nothing happens. Okay, so um, Eglon was a fat man, verse 18. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gil Gilgal. Okay, now Gilgal is a relative, relatively far distance from this city of Palms, so he's not in the palace anymore. He turns back at these idols. Now, those idols are going to show up again. Look at verse 26. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syria. Okay? So they're mentioned in two places, before and after. In fact, the whole action of this scene fits between these idols. And it's appropriate to ask why. A couple of things we should notice here is, first, there are idols in Gilgal. That's not the way it was supposed to be. Israel should have taken these out, but it's clear from the book of Judges that everybody knows where these things are, right? They, he doesn't have to refer to the, by the way, there's idols in Gilgal. He just says, you know, it's like you're giving directions and you say, take a right at the big tree, okay? Those idols, the ones at Gilgal, okay? But the second thing is, they probably set the boundaries of this territory, okay? It's like the exit into the safe side. In fact, what are we told? Once he gets past these idols, he's home free. Okay? But third, and this is worth keeping in mind, he goes all the way out, he turns around and he comes back in, and what doesn't happen? The gods of Eglon, they don't interfere. Right? They don't start beeping and warning of what's attacking. Eglon gets no sign of what's happening, and eventually Ehud gets directly out of their presence again. Okay? Most likely here, uh, most likely that's our culprit for why these are brought in here. It's because they're just rocks. They're just idols. They're just empty things, which is, um, which is uh, what, what Jeremiah calls them. They can't do anything for Eglon. Like the psalmist says, 
They have a mouth, but they can't speak. They have ears, but they can't hear your prayers. They have hands, but when you travel, you have to carry them. They cannot deliver King Eglon. But notice what he does. He gets to the edge of the kingdom, and he says, all right, you guys all go home, and he turns around, probably to the guards stationed at the edge of this area, and says, oh, by the way, I have a message. Okay, notice verse 19. He himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. So he goes back to the palace, and he says, I've got a message just for you. And so he says, I want complete quiet, or more likely, total privacy, because look at what happens next. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. Okay. Last time it was just a secret message. Now it's a message from God. Okay. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Okay, and so he, he stabs him right into the stomach as he's standing there, and the sword goes all the way in, and there's enough fat that he's 18 inches thick at least front to back, and so his fat just folds around, uh, folds around the um, sword. Now, when it says the dung came out, it's talking here about what it sounds like, and it's either that he's pierced an intestine or that in his death he relieves himself. But either way, that becomes significant because of what happens next. And here's where the humor comes in. Verse 23, Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind them and locked them. Okay. Now, the way that reads there, it makes it sound like he goes out of the palace, he closes the door and locks it, and takes the key with him and leaves. We're going to see that's not the case. There's a couple of words here in the Hebrew. We don't know what they mean. But a scholar just recently in the last decade has suggested that this place where he goes is not the porch, but the septic tank. Okay? That he actually sneaks out through the king's room of privacy. Just slips through the toilet and he's gone. Okay? Um, that's, that's why... Well, let's just read, and it'll make sense here. Okay, so, verse 24, When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. That word for closet there is the same word that, that Ehud has just escaped through, okay? And so, he escapes out the back way. He's locked the front doors, and probably they can smell this recently dead and... Um, defecating king. And so they go, we're just going to give him a minute. Okay. So verse 25, they waited till they were embarrassed. Okay. There are not very many places where there's scatological humor in the Bible, but that's about the highlight of it, right? They waited until they thought, okay, there's no way he's still in the restroom. <laughs> That's the conclusion they come to. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. And while they're waiting, what is Ehud doing? He's getting across town. He's escaping. Okay. Notice how thoughtful this entire plan is. Okay. It's planned out, every piece of it. He knows what's going on here. Okay. 
Now, here's something that you cannot see in the English, which is really interesting. There are a lot of rare words in this passage, some of them because they refer to toilets, as we already saw, but the other rare words are all sacrificial language, okay? So the word that's used here for a sword is not the usual word for sword. Uh, the word that's used here uh, for the stabbing is not the usual word for stabbing. When you look at the language and you go, where do we get these words from? It's all the book of Leviticus, okay? Here we have... Eglon, the calf, and we see him being played out just like a sacrifice, okay? And it seems intentional there. It's recognizing uh, just God's sovereignty in this, that there's really no difference between um, the enemies of Israel and a sacrifice at the temple. And so what Ehud is doing here, and this is hard to believe, is worship, okay? Now, we have to confess here, when we look at this story, we, we go, this isn't just gross, it's tremendously underhanded, okay? And we are absolutely right not to hold up Ehud as being an example and going, hey, espionage, that's the Lord's will for your life, man. That's, that's not how we should take this, but we should be really reluctant to make two mistakes. First off, the book of Judges does not give us commentary on its characters. And so there are a lot of places where we just have to let things lie because the author does. And sometimes they're hard to look at. But Ehud isn't applauded here for his methodology. And at the same time, the author made very clear that he was raised up by the Lord. Okay? I don't want to resolve that tension because it's, it's a modern tension. How do you think Israel read this story? As exciting as it is, and the truth is, if this wasn't in the Bible, you'd probably watch the movie. Right? It is really an exciting story. There's intrigue and appeal. There's there's humor, and ultimately, there's a delivered people, and that's what really matters here, okay? But we need, to, we need to recognize here that the point of the story is that Israel cries out, and God raises up a deliverer, and they are delivered. So verse 26, Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syria. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. Okay, we see how the pattern plays out again. And so even here, we get a longer period of rest. It was only 40 years for Othniel, but 80 years here, okay? We're telling relatively long stories. And then we get one of the short ones, a man named Shamgar, verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Now, two things here, okay? There is Bethanath, which is a town... I believe in Simeon, okay? So maybe this is a guy from Simeon, but it's also, some people suggest that he's a son of Anath, as in this uh, royal guard that served in Egypt. It's a long story. It makes more sense in the context of the book. The only tribe that's missing is Simeon, and there's an, a Beth Anath in Simeon. So that makes more sense. Um, but I wanted to point it out here because it does say he also saved Israel. Okay? And so maybe here, 
it says, oh, by the way, there was this guy who wasn't even an Israelite and God used him. But more likely here, what's really striking about Shamgar is his methodology. He killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. Now, don't think of a cattle prod, which is what I used to think an ox goad was, okay? So I was thinking, you know, a foot long with two pokers on the end of it. An ox goad is closer to a spear with a small spade on the, on the butt of it, okay? So it's about six feet long. It's got a metal tip on one side and a shovel on the other. Either way, it's a farming tool, okay? And he wields it successfully against 600 men. So now we start to see the pattern of how these things work. And very little detail is given to Shamgar, uh, Shagmar, Shamgar, sorry. Uh, we don't know the state of Israel. We don't know how long he ruled over Israel. It's just the basic details. But that's because we're starting to get into the pattern. And now we get to Deborah and Barak. Okay. So chapter 4, verse 1. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Now, we've already met Jabin, the king, but just like we saw with Adonizedek, just like we saw with Pharaoh, Jabin is a king's title. So this kingdom already has beef with Israel from the days of Joshua, but this is a couple of kings down the line. And so because of Israel's evil, the Lord sells them into the hands of the king of Canaan. And then notice this, the commander of the king's army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Haggim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Why? Because he had 900 chariots of iron and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. All commentators believe that 900 chariots in this day and age, in this place, is a lot of chariots. Okay? I don't know how it sounds to us today. Um, on top of that, we do see one of the earmarks of the truthfulness of the historicity of this story. And here's why. Because the book of Judges is at the very beginning of what we call the Iron Age. It's also at the very end of the value of chariots. Now, chariots make an extreme revival in the days of Rome, but that is a metal chariot. When it says chariots of iron here, this means chariots that are somehow wrapped in iron, not metal boxes, okay? Or maybe their wheel frames are iron. They, there's no way that these are actually fully iron chariots. That's a pretty late thing. But this is exactly the last days of the chariot and the first days of iron. And so, as we would expect, this is the upper echelon of military power in this day. Okay? That's why the statement is so significant. So he uses these 900 chariots to conquer and then to keep Israel in check. But what did we read earlier about iron chariots? This is, this is one of the places where Israel is the most hesitant, right? This is one of the reasons why they left some of the inhabitants intact. And so here's the situation, and it begins in verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. Now, the word there for judging is not the same word that we translate for the judges. As we'll see here, Deborah is not the deliverer of Israel, Barak is. But we are told here that Deborah is a prophetess, and that's not something new or novel. Moses' sister was a prophet. Deborah's ministry of delivery is kind of like the angel of the Lord in the story of Gideon, to call the deliverer, to give the thus saith the Lord, to speak. 
Um, and so we find her here, and when it says that she was judging Israel at that time, look at verse 5, she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now there's two, two possibilities here. If you remember from all the way back in the book of Exodus, people would come to Moses for counsel, and it's the same word here. And so it may be what we're talking about here is judgment in the sense of, um, of giving legal counsel. Now, what's absent from this chapter? What's absent from the book of Judges so far? The priesthood, right? At the very few ver- verses, Judah, in- they inquire the Lord who will go out. That's the priesthood. And then they're missing until we find them totally corrupt at the end, okay? As one commentator puts it, the silence of the priesthood in the book of Judges is deafening. It's just a clearly missing component. And so God is using Deborah, and possibly in that way, to provide broad leadership and counsel where the priesthood is failing. But there is one other alternative, and it's a pretty good one, okay? We're going to find out here uh, what we already know, that Israel was crying out to the Lord. And so it may be that they're coming to her as a judge of that particular thing. In other words, to hear from the Lord what the Lord has determined about their prayers. Like I said, that's not necessarily a bad case. It doesn't really change the story, but those are the options on the table. Either way, she has a significant respect and following in Israel. And so notice here it says uh, that she had a habit of sitting under the palm tree that bore her name, okay? The palm tree of Deborah. Israel came to her for judgment. Verse 6, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali. Okay, so where is he from? He's from the tribe of Naphtali. Kadesh Naphtali, and he said, she said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulon. And so she says, Barak, you're the chosen one. You're the one God is going to use to deal with Sisera and his armies, to deal with Jabin, king of Canaan. Now, the ESV in my Bible puts this statement in the past tense. Hasn't God already said that you should do this? If that's right, the idea here is that he knows what he's supposed to be doing and he hasn't done it. And as we'll see in a second, that fits his character. But she may just be stating it in the past tense because it's that evident. She just wants him to understand the truthfulness of it. But what does she say? She says, gather an army and go to Mount Tabor. Now, Mount Tabor, don't think sharp and pointy. Think mound, okay? The mounts in Israel are not very big, okay? And so here's the problem. That's a scary thing to do with an army of 10,000 people when you have 900 chariots because if they encircle this mound, you're trapped. And then they just move in on you, right? Um, but we'll see, there's a plan here. And so he's to get 10,000 from two tribes, Naphtali and Zebulon. And here's what God says, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Now Barak says to Deborah, verse 8, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And he says, fine. I'll go, I'll gather the armies, but only if you come with me, okay? Now, once again, clearly that is a sign of deep respect for Deborah, but it's also a sign of dependency. 
We have a break in the pattern here. We'll see reluctance in Gideon and a few of the others in the story, but, with, but here he basically says, I'm not going unless you come with me. The word of the Lord is not assuring enough for him. And so notice how she responds. Verse 9, she said, I'll surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And so she says, you're going to get the victory, but not the glory. And then ambiguously, she says, the glory is going to go to a woman. She will take the life of Sisera. Now, we don't know who the woman is yet. And it may even be that the author wants this to be intention that maybe it's Deborah. Maybe one of the questions we should be asking in reading this is, who's the real judge here? Who's the real deliverer? But nonetheless, she says this, and then they arose, and she went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. In other words, a Canaanite who none of us knows or cares about moved really far north in Israel. But once again, the author's giving us what we need to know for what happens next. And here's what's really striking. We're about to learn about the death of Sisera, and it's going to happen in this guy's house. Okay? And so the preparation for this victory involves some foreign dude who moved all the way to Israel, packing up his U-Haul and moving on a whim, away from all of his family, just so he can be a setting in the story. It's put here just to be a reminder of God's sovereignty, and it's something that we should keep in mind, okay? That even in the smallest circumstances, God is capable of orchestrating things for his will. It's not just in the big things of the battles and the armies. Just one guy's desire to move is part of God's plan. I say this because there's so much in our lives that seems insignificant or mundane. Just as mundane, mundane as Heber moving up north. But notice the part it plays in the story. Heber doesn't matter, but his wife, that's another story. Verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone out to Mount Tabor, he thinks this is going to be a slaughter. Really? He's at Mount Tabor? We're going to rout them. Verse 13, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Hashereth Haggim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. Now, two things there. All of this building for the battle, and then the battle's just over. We're not told any of the details. Second, why in the world would the fastest way for Sisera to get away to be on foot instead of behind a horse-drawn chariot. We're not told here. We will be told in chapter 5, but the author is intentionally driving towards the glory of the story. And so he skips over the battle. And he's like, and there was a fight, and we won, but, but Sisera, he's running out the side door, okay? And we follow him. And so notice what happens. Verse 16, Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Hashereth Haggim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. 
So where's Barak? On the front lines, taking care of the army. Where's Sisera? Getting as far away as fast as he can to hide. But, verse 17, Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Hebor, the Canaanite. In other words, he goes, you know what? My buddy just moved up into this area. I can hide there. Now are you starting to see how God's sovereignty is playing out? God's laying a trap for Sisera. In verse 18, Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. Now, Haber had an alliance, but Jael... She doesn't seem to be in on it. We don't, we're not told the story. We don't know if there's any history. We don't know why she identifies with the people of Israel or hates, uh, hates this general of the army of Canaan. But nonetheless, she calls him in. She says, come inside. You can hide here. Okay. Verse 19, he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. If any man comes in and asks you, is anyone here, say no. So notice what he's afraid of. He's hiding, and he says, stay at the door, and if any man comes looking for me, right, he's afraid of a soldier who might be knocking on doors looking for a fugitive, right? But notice what happens. Verse 21, but Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. So he's so tired, he passes out, and she comes over with a hammer and a tent peg, and like Dracula just drives it right through him, except not in the chest, but right through his head. And so, who gets the glory? Jael, not Barak. Just this woman who was in the right place in the right time, not by accident, but by God's will, uh, and she's the one who delivers them from the hand of Sisera. So verse 23, on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Now, Judges is a really interesting book to study gender biblically. It's fascinating. We don't have time to do that here. But just consider the way gender plays out in the book. For example, in the beginning, we have a man who says that his, uh, who wants the best for his daughter, right? Caleb, no one can marry my daughter unless he demonstrates that he's got strong faith in the Lord and takes a city. And at the end, we have a Benjamite and his concubine that to save his own skin, he locks outside and leaves her to be raped till dawn and till dead. Those stories bookend the book. And then right in the middle here, we have the story of Barak and Deborah, and it clearly revolves around gender, doesn't it? It must be somehow significant that Barak, because of his unwillingness, because of his reliance on Deborah, the victory goes to a woman. And Jael's not the only victor we'll find in the book. Unfortunately, the other one's a victor over Samson. But it's surprisingly similar. In fact, when it says here that she drove the peg, that's, there's a, what do we call that? There's an allusion to that in the Samson story, which I'll point out to you in what this, um, 
what this woman Delilah does. Um, but all of that to say, it's an interesting thing that we don't have time for. Um, okay, so chapter 5 is effectively a response of praise for the victory. But the reason I want to read it through tonight together with this is because when we put the two chapters in tension, hold them together, we get the whole story. And so what we see in chapter 4 is primarily the actions of people, even though those, even though those actions evoke the faithfulness of God. De- Deborah says, Barak, God's going to go before you. But when we actually see things happening, we see Deborah acting, we see Barak acting, we see Jael acting. But in chapter 5, we see God's action. But the other thing we're going to see is intention. Um, Well, let's just look at it. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. And so they're, they're so thankful here for the armies that stood together for this victory. Verse 3, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing, I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, God of Israel. Okay, and so what do we see here? We see as if it's not Israel on the march, but God himself. And his steps are so strong that it begins to rain and the earthquakes. Now, notice what it says in verse 6. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and the travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. And one of the things that I do want to point, about, point out about gender in this is that we see tremendous ability, power, selection, respect for the women in this story, but the way they function is significantly female. And so she refers to herself here as a mother of Israel, which is a high title. Uh, and Jael gets the victory, but we don't find her on the front lines like Joan of Arc, do we? We find her actually... Um, doing almost a subverted motherly thing, giving milk, laying down to rest, and then taking the victory. I have studied gender in the Bible at great length. That is a clear thread that runs through it. We find tremendously great examples of women in the Bible, but all of them function as God's chosen women in womanly ways. It's hard to avoid. They do amazing, victorious things. Uh, I'll give you another, another um, weapon we find in the hands of a woman in the Bible. It's a millstone. What she would use to turn her grain, she drops out of a window and kills the one man everyone else was afraid of. But there's this pattern that persists. And so it, it's mentioned here that Deborah sees herself, self-identifies as a mother of Israel. Then verse 8, when the new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among the 40,000 in Israel? So here's what she says. She says, in the days of this time, when this victory took place, nobody went on trips anymore because the roads were dangerous. Because the enemies of Israel would go, so I see you're traveling. You got any money for the armies of Canaan? 
And so they take the back roads and they're in hiding. And there's no weapons to be found everywhere. Everything has been confiscated. It's in these days that this victory takes place. And then she says again, verse 9, My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of the villagers in Israel. In other words, as they gather from here on, they're going to tell the story of the victory of Barak and the victory of Jael. Uh, then down to the gates march the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in song. Now, the word there for song is Deborah. She's making a play on her own name there, okay? Uh, it, her name just means the word. But when she uses it in this way, break out in words, she's clearly talking about singing. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. Now, notice here, she's going to talk about the involvement of tribes. She talks about the blessing of involvement, and she's going to talk about the curse of not being involved. And so here, verse 14, from Ephraim, their route, they marched down in the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders. From Zebulon, those who bear the lieutenant staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar's faithful to Barak. In the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, they were still great searchings of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfold to hear the whistling for the flocks? So Reuben doesn't show up. They know about it, they hear about it, they go, we'll think about it, and they go, we'd rather take care of our sheep. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, okay, that's Gad and Dan. Why did they stay near their ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulon is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. So some of Israel came, and some did not. Verse 19, the kings came. They fought. They fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From the heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. Now, in the book of Joshua, there's that occasion where the sun stands still. Interestingly enough, that's also a story of the king of Jabin, just not this king of Jabin. Uh, and, but we talked about the fact that we do know that there was an eclipse in the land of Israel near the days of Joshua, but it's too late. It's the right time for here. And so one of the things that's significant here when it talks about the stars being involved is possibly one of the phenomenons we observe in an eclipse, which is stars that you can never see that suddenly are seen during an eclipse, okay? Because they're day stars and the sun hides them, okay? Uh, and so that may be what's being referred to here. But notice even more importantly, verse 21, the torrent of Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. Now we finally understand what happened, says here that God came before them, and we read earlier that he shook the heavens and it rained. And now we see that the Kishon River began to flow with water, and so notice next, verse 22, the loud beat of the horse's hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds, okay? And so in the midst of this is the armies of Sisera in their chariots in a flood, See, we're not told this part of the story. He skips over it. But in the praise, we discover that God miraculously floods the valley. This is why um, Deborah sends him to the river. 
And that's why their chariots get stuck in the mud, and that's why Sisera runs away. Okay? But he was rushing to tell us the story with Jael, so it was skipped over. But here we see once again it's God that's fighting for Israel. Verse 23, curse Meraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Now, we don't know where Meraz is, but here's the suggestion. It's probably really close to the battlefield. Okay? And so they're in, in line of sight of this, and they go, we're going to stay home and play it safe, thank you. And so they miss out on the victory. And then she moves on to a blessing. Curse Meraz, bless, most blessed of women be jail the wife of Heber, the Canaanite, of the tent-dwelling women, the most blessed. There is only one other woman in the Bible referred to most blessed among women. That's Mary. And one of the things that's striking is it's for very different reasons. Jael is blessed because she drove a tent peg through a man's skull. But if you read the Magnificat, Mary's response, it's actually the opposite. It's about the lowly God raising up and him putting down the high. If anything, we should remember that both from Old Testament and New Testament, we have a continuity. God is a just judge in the Old Testament. He's a just judge in the New Testament. Sin matters in the Old Testament. It matters in the New Testament. God brings about his wrath in the Old Testament. If you read the book of Revelation, it's clearly there. But there is also a discontinuity. We as a church are not the people of Israel. And it's significant to me that because of the work of Christ, the most blessed among women in the New Testament is a woman of surrender and submission, held up as an example to us of trust in the Lord. Now, Jael has her own version of trust, but it is a uniquely militant trust. Okay? But nonetheless, she's referred to as the most blessed of women. Verse 25, he asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds and a noble bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. Look, notice how it slows down here, just like it did with Eglon detail by detail, telling us the story. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still between her feet, he sank, he fell, where he sank, there he fell, dead. Okay. So it really draws this out. And then verse 28, out of the window she peered. Now notice she jumps to a different woman here, not Jael, but another mother. This one is the mother of Sisera. She wailed through the lattice, why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariot? Now, actually, this is a relatively sympathetic scene. Can you picture this? Here's Sisera's mother going, why isn't he home yet? He should have routed Israel by now. I should be able to see his chariot coming home down the road in victory. I don't have time tonight, but I wanted to read you I uh, wanted to read you a passage from an old Greek play where the women talk about how their men, their sons and their husbands go off to war and come home in an ash jar. It's always just struck me for some reason. But that's her concern. She goes, wait a minute, something's not right. But notice here, verse 29, her wisest princess answers, indeed she answers herself, have they not found and divided all the spoil, a womb or two for every man? And she says, look, this is what she basically says. Look, they're probably just fighting over all of the wealth, and they're probably raping the women. That's what it means, a womb or two for every man. It's a reminder, again, of the type of people that the enemies of Israel were. And also, it doesn't really speak highly of the mother or the princess here, because they're fine with that. It's to be expected. It's natural. It's just a part of war. 
A womb or two for every man, spoils of dyed materials for Sisera, Sisera, spoils of dyed material embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. In other words, they think about Sisera, and then they think about all the presents that are coming. But they're not coming. And so it finishes here, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. Okay, and so this song is looking back, and it's not only praising God for what he's done, but it's also showing how it is that we receive the victory, that we have to be participants, that we can't stay home and sit on the couch. So there we've covered four of the 12 judges. We'll pick up with Gideon next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. And, you know, when we look at such a dark history in the time of Israel, it is very dark, but we see your light and it gives us hope, Lord. Because if you moved in the days of the judges, if you had compassion on your people then, we can trust that you can move today. We can trust that you'll have compassion today. And although the New Testament makes clear that our enemies are not of flesh and blood, but of powers and principalities and spiritual forces of darkness, and although the New Testament makes clear that our weapons of warfare are not physical, not even tent pegs and hammers, Lord, but they are capable of pulling down strongholds, strongholds, Lord. And so I ask God that we would enter into victory, that we wouldn't balk like Barak did, Lord, but that we would enter in like the people of Zebulon and Naphtali, that we would trust in your ability to bring about victory in our lives, and that we would be your friends who would follow you, as it says, as the sun moves across the sky in victory, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a good night.